Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for Episode 6 on January 28th, 2010. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com, on Facebook at Air Medical Today, and on Twitter at Air Med Today. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes under Air Medical Today. For additional information about the guest on the podcast, I am also providing background data at my blog at blog.ero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guest is Mr. Lee Asi, who is the manager of syndication and social media for the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I am also going to check in with Dave Harden, Arabac Life Team Director of Safety, in the first response section. Dave has been assisting with the air medical evacuation of victims from the earthquake from the Dominican Republic. Before I introduce my guests, I want to go over some feedback from Episode 5 and cover some recent air medical transport news. I did hear some feedback from Episode 5 of the podcast. The listener asked if I had to read the source of the articles and information during the news and information section of the podcast. Since I list the links to all the articles I use in the show notes, I believe this is a good suggestion. Going forward, I will leave off the mention of the sources during this section, but all links will continue to be in the show notes. Remember, I do want to hear from you, so call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file to the email address to provide feedback, ask questions, or if you have suggestions for future guests. I will be putting selected voice messages on the podcast. As mentioned in previous episodes, I am trying to locate all Air Medical and Critical Care Transport fan pages on Facebook. If your program or service is not shown in the Favorites tab in the left column on the Air Medical Today Facebook page, please either leave a message on our page or send your page's link to me at webmaster at airmedtoday.com. I would like to be the directory for all Facebook pages so that any program can find and fan fellow air medical and critical care transport providers. I heard from West Michigan Air Care in Kalamazoo, Michigan this week, uh, which is one of my previous programs, and uh, I welcome all my friends at Air Care to Facebook. And now for some news and information. As mentioned in the last two podcasts, I am trying to find other air medical providers from around the world who have responded to Haiti. Since the last podcast, I've learned of the following information. AirMed International, a Birmingham, Alabama-based air ambulance service, reported that they flew to Haiti to take two men who suffered severe spinal injuries in the earthquake uh, to Chicago for treatment. 
The two men transported are being treated at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. Air Med provides air ambulance services to the U.S. military, which enabled the flight carrying two nurses, a doctor, and a respiratory therapist. The company said that they will pay for 75% of the $35,000 mission, with relief agencies pledging to play the other part of the cost. Air Med also reported that another trip to Haiti is planned on either Friday or Saturday of this week to carry two additional earthquake victims to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. I've also seen a number of stories of individuals that are flight crew, being flight nurses or paramedics, that are serving in Haiti, but not part of an air medical team. So I did want to provide a thanks to them and all the volunteers that have given their time and talent to the earthquake. In the first response section of the podcast, I will be interviewing Dave Harden, who will provide an update on the work he has been doing to assist Aero Ambulancia with their response to Haiti from the Dominican Republic. If you know of others, please email me at webmaster at airmedtoday.com. With healthcare reform, House and Senate leaders said Tuesday they need time to determine the best way forward on health care in the wake of last week's special election loss in Massachusetts, which cost Democrats their filibuster-proof Senate majority of 60. Healthcare reform is badly adrift, and lawmakers want to stop talking about the divisive topic and move on to jobs and the economy. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, Democrat from Nevada, however, said that we're going to find out a way to proceed, but there is no rush. Democrats have acknowledged that opposition to the health care remake in Washington helped spark the Massachusetts revolution and now have four options for moving forward. They include a scaled-back measure designed to attract some Republican support, the House passing the Senate bill, or the House passing the Senate bill with both chambers making changes to bridge those differences. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has ruled out passing the Senate bill with no changes, and Democrats are not publicly advocating abandoning the effort besides a few conservative Democrats. At the State of the Union speech to a joint session of Congress last evening, President Obama urged lawmakers to take a second look at health care reform. As temperatures cool, I want everyone to take another look at the plan we proposed, the president said. Republicans waved hands in the air when he added, but if anyone from either party has a better approach that will bring down premiums, bring down the deficit, cover the uninsured, strengthen Medicare for seniors, and stop insurance company abuses, let me know. Senator John Cornyn, a Republican from Texas and also chair of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, which helped fund the GOP upset in Massachusetts, said that Democrats had 60 votes, and if they had been able to deal with divisions and differences within their own party, they would have been able to pass health care reform in August. Senate Republicans, without exception, say that the White House needs to start over with health care reform. Democrats say that if health care is to have another shot, consensus must come from within their own ranks, as they will not have support from the Republicans. Air Medical Today will continue to cover this story as it seems to be proceeding very slowly now.
LifeNet of New York, a wholly owned subsidiary of Air Methods Corporation, is opening helicopter rural bases in Sydney and Hornell in upstate New York. The helicopter base in Sydney is planned to be opened by mid to late February and the site in Hornell about one month later. The company has been doing outreach to the hospitals and emergency personnel in the area where the two new helicopter crews will be providing services. Other LifeNet of New York helicopters that serve the area operate from bases in Albany, Montgomery, Ulster, and Sullivan counties. Mercy Flight of Onontaja County provides services to the areas as well as Guthrie Air of Sayre, Pennsylvania, which also is a subsidiary of Air Methods Corporation. Each helicopter will be staffed 24-7 by an EMS pilot, flight nurse, and flight paramedic. Kimberly Munley, who ended the November massacre at Fort Hood by shooting the suspect, was invited to the nation's capital for President Barack Obama's State of the Union address last night. The police sergeant is recovering from being shot during the rampage at the Army base and still has pain in her newly constructed knee, which she needs to keep elevated. This made her commercial airline trip to Washington in a coach seat in ordeal this week. After learning of her trying trip, a charity group called Grace Flight of America stepped in. The company, which flies people who need medical aid, redirected a Beechcraft King Air C-90 from a medical mission in Haiti to pick up Munley. Remember, this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. The Twitter feed is more comprehensive than the Facebook postings, but the Twitter feed can also be seen on the Facebook page under the RSS slash blog tab. It is delayed, however, due to the network issues on Facebook. For this episode's first response section of the podcast, I talk with Mr. Dave Harden, who is the Director of Safety for Aravac Life Team. Dave has been in the Dominican Republic at the request of Aero Ambulancia to assist in their response to the Haitian earthquake. Aero Ambulancia is the only air medical provider on the island of Hispanola, where the Dominican Republic and Haiti are located. I caught up with Dave from his office in West Plains, Missouri, after he just got back from the Dominican Republic. Welcome, Dave, and thanks for taking the time uh, for being on the podcast. I know you're back in the uh, U.S. and and quite busy. You bet. It's uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, glad uh, glad I could uh, could spend a little time and visit about the good folks down in the, the Dominican Republic and uh, all the efforts they've been uh, been, been putting forth on uh, on assisting the, the the tragedy over in Haiti. Yes, and you were invited down by Aero Ambulancia in the Dominican Republic. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, after the uh, the morning after the earthquake occurred, uh, my boss uh, Colin Collins uh, uh, called up and uh, and he told me he said, "Hey, Dave, he said, do you think the uh, the folks down at uh, Air Ambulancia could uh, could use any help uh, with the Haiti disaster?" And uh, boy, if, if they could, just uh, why don't you just go ahead and hop on the plane and head on down and uh, do whatever you can to help? So, and so I did. We took the company plane and flew down and caught the next flight out of Atlanta and uh, and uh, mm-hmm. was down in uh, Santo Domingo that night. Well, so and your base uh, of operations then has been in the Dominican Republic. 
Yeah, they um, uh, Helidos Aviation Group uh, is uh, uh, is the parent company for Airline Valencia, and uh, they have uh, two operations there on uh, in the Dominican Republic. And uh, the the Dominican Republic is the east side of the island of Hispaniola, right. and in uh, Haiti is on the west side. Uh, Air Ambulancia's primary base of operations is on the northwest side of uh, Santo Domingo at uh, the La Isabella Airport, and it's about uh, by helicopter from there. It's about an hour and fifteen minute flight to the Port of Prince Airport, uh, where most everyone was needing to get into to uh, you know for the relief workers and uh, supplies, and then uh, flying the patients and uh, and things like that out of the country. And on the island. Uh, then they are really the only air medical provider, right? It, there's not a service in Haiti, is there? Yes, that's correct. There's no uh, – the uh, Air Ambulance is the first uh, helicopter EMS uh, operation uh, in the, on the island at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, matter of fact, the uh, the uh, aviation regulators uh, for the uh, Dominican Republic have adopted the uh, FAA Part 135 standards uh, for operation, and uh, Helidosa was the first to receive operation specifications for a helicopter EMS operation in the country. So this is a uh, history in the making for those folks down there, real wow. professionals and good people uh, working hard to do it right. Well, this must have put a lot of pressure on this service being the only provider right there. Um, I, I don't want to get into any patient-specific information, but how many transports have there been, and they have they primarily been helicopter, or there have there been some fixed wing? Well, there's just been a little bit of everything. Uh, uh, there's been uh, every airplane and every helicopter that exists uh, in that uh, part of the country, and, and a large majority of them from the states up here uh, all showed up down there and started working. And uh, but uh, at Air Ambulancia, they had uh, their three medical helicopter, uh, medical uh, con- medically configured helicopters in operation, uh, and then they had uh, five other smaller helicopters that they were using. And the missions varied uh, from uh, from EMS missions uh, flying patients out to to flying relief workers uh, in and supplies and food and water for the relief workers and things of that nature. So uh, it was just a little bit of everything, cargo, people, in and out, uh, patient missions, uh, uh, you name it, it was uh, was needed to be done. Are most of the patients there transporting then uh, going to hospitals in the Dominican Republic? Yes, uh, uh, a lot of the patients, uh, th- there was movements within the country from uh, uh, when the earthquake occurred, uh, the damage was, was pretty well limited to the uh, to the Port-au-Prince area. Right. So you get about 40 or 50 miles outside of, uh, of from the epicenter of the earthquake, and uh, uh, some of the smaller communities and towns in, in Haiti were, were unaffected to a great degree. So some of the missions went from, uh, you know, from the, the surrounding areas nearby there to the outlying clinics, and some, some came back into the Dominican Republic. Republic, because uh, uh, there's several, uh, there's two large trauma centers in the Dominican Republic, one in uh, Santiago and one in uh, Santo Domingo, uh, and a lot of smaller uh, hospitals as well. So patients came out and went to those clinics, uh, went to the hospitals there in the country, came back and uh, got on fixing flights and flew back to the States. So it was just, with that massive number of people, uh, they were just being flown uh, all over the different parts of that country and in neighboring countries as well. Right. Had... Did you get a feel for it and for the other providers that are going in there? Last uh, episode, I interviewed uh, uh, the flight crew from the University of Michigan that were down there. I've followed a number of articles. There's a number of people volunteering, and I hear about uh, some some flights. But what do you know? What the full breadth and and depth of the the number of flights uh, going in and out of Port-au-Prince are? 
boy, it's just uh, that that's just really uh, going to be a number that's just anybody's guess because there okay. were so many aircraft. Uh, I mean, the, uh, by the second day, uh, when everyone started showing up down there, the uh, the airspace got so saturated over the Port-au-Prince airport that they uh, that the, the the Haitian government closed the airspace around right. the airport there right. and uh, yeah. uh, and, uh, and and basically turned off the radio and said uh, we we can't do this. And uh, so it wasn't uh, too long that uh, I'm not sure which uh, military agency or which it was that got it back in service, but uh, they were able to reopen the airspace again and get it going. But uh, there was just many times when the airspace around Port-au-Prince was saturated, uh, and then uh, the reports of the, the aircraft that were in the holding pattern over the Port-au-Prince airport uh, for an hour and a half, uh, and, and then they were, were they were running out of fuel, so they had to run over. They had to go over to uh, airports in the Dominican Republic side, and uh, then the airspace and the DR got saturated, and uh, so yeah, it was just really yeah. an airspace challenge. Uh, from uh, you know, because the island is is such a small island, uh, and take that many aircraft, airplanes, and helicopters, and uh, it really took. Uh, it was really a, a logistical challenge uh, to be able to to have those those aircraft operate. Matter of fact, the first. Uh, uh, the first full day of operations, uh, the pilots uh, were coming back reporting near misses and things of that nature. And so it took about 24 hours or so before everybody kind of got on the same sheet of music and uh, the helicopter started flying uh, uh, routes in and out, uh, you know, different routes in and different routes out and uh, divided the altitudes going in and out so that there was uh, vertical and lateral separation. And uh, everybody got on the same frequency and radio calls and, and all that. And uh, then the fixed-wing aircraft were working in the standard IFR patterns and the mm-hmm. helicopters were staying on the south side of the airport, uh, staying clear of the runway. And, and uh, so it, it took about 24, 36 hours or so before everything finally got uh, a little bit older to it to where, where everybody could safely operate uh, in and out of the country because everybody was needing to go there to the Port-au-Prince airport uh, was kind of the center of activity uh, initially in the beginning. Yeah, right, because you had relief, volunteers, news organizations, and of course, air medical. And uh, I, I, I yeah, know... Yeah, go ahead. Even support services too, because we were flying uh, folks in that needed to work mm-hmm. on the uh, the cell towers and things like that, because there was no electricity, no communications, and and one of, that was one of the challenges too, because uh, for flight following for the helicopters, because once you crossed over into the uh, across the Haitian border uh, with no cell towers and uh, and no power, uh, the folks down there you, you rely heavily on uh, cell phones for communications. So once you flew across the border without any cell towers, they couldn't communicate back with uh, with our operations, and so we ended up uh, flying in flights of two or more aircraft so that if anything happened to one of the aircraft, there would be another one that could do a radio relay back to the comm center to be able to uh, to let us know that they needed some assistance. Mm-hmm. And so it was a real logistical challenge to be able to, uh, for the folks down there in the country and all the different resources and, and all the companies to work together, being the companies there in the country and, and, and the other ones that showed up, uh, everybody had the same goal in mind, but it took a lot of effort on all the professional uh, professional folks part uh, to work together to make that thing uh, work smoothly so that nobody got hurt and we were all able to provide uh, as much assistance as possible to the to the folks that needed it right because safety has to be number one absolutely um is there a central place then that uh there's coordination of the air medical response was, was that going through 
Aero Ambulancia, or is that still? Well, it was it was one of the uh, we were we were one of the places. Uh, the problem is I don't know. Uh, you know, everybody was kind of so involved in doing uh, what you know what they could to to work for for the different folks that needed them. Uh, we you know we had worked through Ames and uh, uh, the folks at Ames had uh, had sent out some email broadcasts, yes, and so right. there were a lot of folks all over the world uh, that contacted me and and said, "Hey, we hear that you're down there, and uh, you know uh, what what does everybody need in, in any way that." Uh, uh, that we can assist, and uh, uh, and then folks would call and say, "Hey, we're coming down, and, uh, and and what's the where's the best place to go, and where can we get fuel, and where is there parking available?" And we hear the airspace is saturated, and things like that. So right. uh, it was just a huge uh, aviation airlift uh, logistical uh, challenge for everybody. It was it was really, really quite the uh, quite the effort. Was your role, Dave, primarily in uh, safety and logistics? Is that what you were assisting with? It was. I really went down there with the goal in mind to uh, to get together with the folks at Air Ambulancia and and help them in any way that I could. And mm-hmm. uh, so it was really just uh, everybody that came down there. Uh, what needed to be done was just roll your sleeves up and do whatever needed to be done. Uh, and that's what we all did. And uh, so so my my role was to just provide any kind of assistance uh, in any way that I could. And uh, uh, and it was it was a real pleasure working side by side along with the, the professionals there at Haley Dose. That's a that's a good group of folks. Yeah, and I'm sure those. Were, uh, you had some long days there. Yeah, it was. Uh, the, that was one of the challenges. We were getting about four or five hours a night of sleep, and and uh, you know, with the different time zones around the world, uh, yeah. different folks didn't realize what time it was, and so they'd call in the middle of the night, uh, you know, needing <laughs> needing some answers and things like that. So, it uh, yeah, it was uh, it was it was something new. That's for sure. It was uh, perspective, if it was not anything else. And Dave, you're planning on going back. Yeah, I'm going back in uh, in about another uh, oh seven or eight days, and mm-hmm. I'm going to go down for another week and uh, and visit with those folks and uh, and uh, uh, do a few more things with them. So, oh, yeah, great. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So you're uh, back and uh, back to your regular job now, and so I I, I know it's uh, it was hard scheduling because I know you're busy. So I appreciate you taking the time. You bet, you bet. I've enjoyed it. Uh, if there's anything we can do, just give us a holler. Okay, thanks, Dave. Today I am interviewing Lee Ozzie, who is the Manager of Syndication and Social Media for the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Lee's team's focus is developing quality medical news resources for mainstream media and using social media applications to create more in-depth, extended relationships directly with key stakeholders. You can see examples of Mayo's clinic's media offerings through the Mayo Clinic news blog or at Sharing Mayo Clinic. By night, Lee is the Chancellor of Social Media University Global, or SMUG, a free online higher education institution that provides practical hands-on training in social media for lifelong learners. Prior to joining Mayo Clinic in 2000, Leo spent more than a decade in political and government communications at the local, state, and federal level. He received his Bachelor's of Science in Political Science from Mankato State University in 1986. Lee lives with his wife and two of his six children in Austin, Minnesota. His other four are grown, and Lee is also a grandfather. Welcome, Lee, and thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Ed, I'm very glad to be with you and look forward to our discussion. Great. Lee, how did you first become interested in social, or I like to call it new media, 
And was this before you started with Mayo Clinic or afterwards? I've always had kind of a, a technical interest, uh, but but actually it, it really didn't start till about 2004, 2005, uh, when podcasting was uh, invented, that I thought of this as a, as a real viable op- uh, opportunity for us to provide Mayo Clinic content uh, to people. So it was, I started Mayo Clinic in 2000 and was doing mainstream media relations, you know, through about 2003, 2004. As I took on the manager role with our media relations team and saw some of the, you know, heard about podcasting and how that offered an opportunity to provide content directly to uh, consumers and patients, uh, it seemed like something worth exploring. So that was uh, sort of our baptism into it. Was it hard to get approval to use this uh, new media and these tools that you're using now? Well, it, it kind of wasn't hard to get approval because we didn't ask for it. Yeah. <laughs> That's always the... <laughs> Because, you know, we were providing, you know, part of the thing that my team does is provide um, broadcast outlets, TV and radio stations with content that they're able to use within their newscasts. We did post those to our, you know, we'd made the decision to post those to our website already. And so when we did our first podcast, it was simply adding an RSS feed to the existing MP3 files that we already had on the web. And because we weren't um, asking for a different kind of content um, and because the content was already approved, uh, we just went ahead and said, you know, that's uh, that's going to be fine. Let's just do the podcast. So we we did the proceed until apprehended model. So so was the start then with podcasting and then you moved into some of the other areas of social media? Right. It really was because mm-hmm. we had looked at this and said, um, this is a way to make further use of the existing resources that we already had available. Um, I mean, it was very much uh, still a push kind of medium, or at least a requested push medium. It wasn't two-way, but it was a way of, in essence, cutting out the middleman um, instead of waiting for the television stations or radio stations to um, deem the segments worthy of airing. Um We'd be, make them available directly to uh, consumers and patients. That isn't to say that we don't still have a, a focus on uh, mainstream media. I mean, that that's still extremely important, um, and it's still the foundation of how we started some of these tools. But uh, we definitely have more opportunities for much richer content and uh, further interaction. Yeah, that, that's really what first attracted me to Mayo because I, the way, because uh, a lot of places think of traditional media and they think, well, if I put out a press release, you know, you know, please, please publish this, and you're sort of beholden. You're not really cutting out traditional media; it's just that you're creating content, and it's really making it easier for the uh, mainstream media to pick up then. Exactly. I mean, a a big part of what we're trying to do with our social media is to do the work we already have to do better. I mean, Mm -hmm. these are just power tools is the way I see them. And so, for instance, with our um, news blog, we're using that as an online newsroom where we provide audio and visual uh, audio and video resources to journalists. Uh, which helps them to understand the story better so that they can, you know, if they're writing a story, they can do it better. If they need audio bites to include in a in a, an audio story, that's great. Or if they're doing a web, uh, even if they're doing um, a broadcast uh, story, 
it's still helpful for them to get that background so that if they do want to send a camera crew out to do the interview, they'll they'll ask good questions and it makes better use of their time and makes better use of the physician's time. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about news blogs. So the, the news blog site, and uh, I'll have all these on in the show notes uh, so that listeners can get to them. That is where you would maybe traditionally be putting out press releases. That is news about Mayo that you want the mainstream media to pick up. Right. It's. Um, I mean, we still do our traditional news releases sometimes. Um, sometimes we accompany them with a, a post on our news blog that will be um, about you know that will provide audio and video resources in addition to the uh, what's in the news release. Uh, sometimes, just in the interest of time and for simplicity's sake, we just do the news blog post and don't do the traditional news release. It's kind of a case by case basis, and um, part of it is. Uh, you know, these are things typically related to research. So if we have a study that's being published in a journal and um, those are typically under embargo, uh, which means that the the media outlets agree in on a condition of receiving the advanced notice that they won't publish a story about that until a, a given time. Mm-hmm. The idea behind that is that, that they're able to, in an orderly way, do a good story and, you know, interview both sides if there are sides, but, you know, get additional feedback and then not have one rushing to get the story out while others are scrambling to catch up. Well, what uh, the news blog enables us to do is uh, post the information for any journalist to see. Uh, If someone's on our journalist list, we send them a link that includes the password to access the information. Um, and that's great. That helps them. It helps us pitch the story, pitch the story, so to speak, to the journalists. But then beyond that, once the uh, stories come off embargo, once they are open to the public, then we can make it open to the public. We take off the password protection on the blog post, and consumers and patients can access that same information that we've made available to journalists. I see. How, what's been the reaction then from traditional media to this? Do they do they like it? Well, they yeah, they find it really helpful. Uh, for one thing, uh, when we're dealing with the morning shows on the networks, one of their big concerns is, you know, if I fly this person out here to be in my studio, will she be good? You know, will she be able to answer questions well, be able to carry on a good conversation? And by uh, putting the video clips up uh, in advance, A, they find out what the story is about, but B, they get a sense of what this uh, person is like on camera so that they can make a good judgment so that even if the person doesn't have network, you know, live television interview experience, they can uh, feel more confident in the decision to put that person on the air. Mm, that's great. Well, since we're talking about the, the news news blog, tell us about the sharing blog and what is that and what's the difference? Well, sure. We, we kind of use a magazine rack metaphor uh, to figure out where our content belongs. Um, we consider our news blog sort of our equivalent of U.S. News or Time Magazine or Newsweek or one of those, you know, hard news magazines. Um, our podcast blog, which is the one we haven't mentioned, is is in between. That's where we host our podcast now. That's more like our prevention magazine. It's our news you can use, not the latest in research, but kind of the you know a summary of 
interesting developments related to a topic. The Sharing Mayo Clinic blog at sharing.mayoclinic.org is our version of People magazine. So it's featurey. Um, it's you know, patient stories, it's employee stories, it's behind the scenes at Mayo Clinic, what's it like to be a patient or employee here. And that helps us, um, you know, guide where, uh, you know, a given story might go is where, what's the editorial focus of the, the given blog. I see. And that, that also is available to anyone that wants to go to it. Absolutely. Including employee stories. Exactly. Yep. Do, you, do you do something, Lee, internally that would be just for employees, too? Right. Well, we have some blogs that are behind uh, our firewall mm -hmm. that are only for employees. Uh, we have one called Let's Talk, which is um, related to our strategic plan and helping employees discuss and understand how the strategic plan elements relate to their work, uh, you know, to have discussions about that. Uh, to hear video and see video of um, physician leaders uh, who are championing some of these uh, strategic priorities and, you know, to, to really help disseminate um, these priorities, you know, throughout the uh, workforce. Is that replace some of the traditional newsletters that you do? Well, I mean, we 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 have a need for print. Uh, we we need to be giving people content in the format that they find helpful to them. Mm -hmm. We have lots of people who are riding shuttle buses between our two hospital campuses, which are not quite a mile apart. A lot of them like to read the newsletter on the on the shuttle bus, and so we provide that opportunity. But the, the real power of some of these electronic tools is the ability to make it a two way discussion, you know, to not just have the um, black hole of the suggestion box uh, or the feedback, you know, where you, you feel like you're sending it into, um, you know, in, into a, a black hole that where it won't maybe make an impact. Um, I think the thing that's really helpful about a blog is that people get to see not only their comment published, but they get to see other people react to their comments, and they can build on each other, and uh, that's the real power of collaboration. Now, you know, having worked in big health systems, not everybody has access or would even be assigned a computer while they're at work. Is there uh, places where people can get online that would, wouldn't be assigned a computer, or do they usually do that from home? Well, I mean, I think there's a mix of that. I mean, everybody has an email address uh, at Mayo Clinic if you're an employee here, whether you have, um, you know, regular access to a, a computer or not. I think most of our, of our employees are able to find someplace on campus where they'd be able to have uh, access to the, to the web and to the internet. Uh, but, you know, definitely we, we've made... Um, these platforms that are available exter externally are ones that we encourage our employees to be engaged in, you know, from home too. But we also don't um, block them from having access uh, during the workday. We have a policy of reasonable personal use of the computer during uh, work time, understanding that you know people, employees, uh, employees are people, <laughs> and that they have an integrated life, and that. Uh, you know, if somebody wants to take a couple minutes to go buy a book on Amazon, um, 
that really isn't that much different than just checking in on Facebook and um, posting a status update or checking on, you know, just checking in. So if it becomes um, a productivity problem and a, and a given employee uh, were to get uh, sucked into spending too much time with that, well, then that's that's a different issue. But we uh, just felt that, uh, well, I mean, we, we never have blocked access to these. So um, where some... Uh, people might have a good story to tell about how they went in and made the case to IT or legal or others that they're uh, that they should be opening up access. Um, thankfully, that isn't a, a fight we've had to have. Mm-hmm. And that I'm glad you said that because that was going to be a question because I've been to um, some healthcare institutions and I'm I'm going to have them remain nameless, but, uh, you know, they come out with this big thing. In fact, I was reading an employee newsletter, this big thing, oh, we're on Facebook, and look at all this great stuff that we're posting, and uh, they are. I mean, it it is some good content, but um, you're not allowed to access this from the hospital. (laughs) You know, and it's like, well, well, wait a minute, why would you do that? Well, that's kind of of a fundamental disconnect, and I guess one of the things that we um, say is that, you know, we're trusting our employees with many of them with sharp instruments around patients, you know, and um, we ought to really be able to trust them to, with proper training and guidance, uh, to conduct themselves appropriately uh, with social networking sites, too. Do you think, Lee, that it, it's mainly because uh, of the reputation, maybe like Facebook and Twitter, you know, the Facebook being a sort of a college thing with pictures of parties and Twitter being, you know, I'm at the grocery store or something. Do you think it's because of that and not understanding really the business uses of some of those tools? Well, yeah, I think there's there sure is a lot of that because um, um, there's, I mean, I don't know how many times I wish I had a nickel for every time somebody says, who cares what I'm having for lunch, you know, about Twitter, yeah. that they yeah. really think that that's what it's all about. Yes. Right. And anybody who's spent um, any time with it knows, you know, how powerful it can be as a tool for networking and making connections with people who have common interests, but who you don't know yet mm-hmm. and um, and sharing links um, so that you're it's more about what you're thinking about and what you're reading and not so much you know, whether you're having pastrami or, you know, <laughs> some other kind of sandwich. So um, I think there's some misunderstanding. I think um, it's always easier to say no. You know, nobody ever, it's kind of like they used to say about stockbrokers in the in the 70s that nobody ever got fired for recommending IBM. Um, likewise, you know, with legal um, um, departments and with IT departments, you know, the safest thing from their perspective is to say no. Uh, but unfortunately, um, the safest thing is the most dangerous thing if it's cutting you off from the world. Yeah. Well, I know a lot of, you mentioned the legal piece, and a lot of institutions don't want employees posting up anything, you know, negative on their on their sites too. So that's one of the other reasons. Um, and I had a, uh, it was a, an administrator of a, uh, large air medical, you know, that was proud saying, you know, no, no, we don't allow our employees to ever have access to that. And I'm thinking, you know, you're missing out because, yeah. you know, I, I know, and you know, that there is a lot of power to the use of, of them. And my primary use is, is really for, for business purposes with creating, you know, informational feeds. So, so tell us then, 
how Mayo is using some of these other tools like Facebook, Twitter. Um, you've talked about the blogs. Um, I know you use YouTube extensively too. Right. Tell us about those. Well, they, they all really do work well together. Um, they each have a bit of their own niche, maybe their own audience. But um, our Facebook uh, fan page has something over 11,000 fans. These are people who've you know, indicated that they um, are interested in Mayo Clinic or or appreciate Mayo Clinic and would like to get, um, you know, occasional updates on what's happening at Mayo. Um, they also tell their stories on um, our Mayo Clinic fan page. So it's, um, I mean, it really does go back to um, the late 1800s when Mayo Clinic really got going, uh, when um, the Mayo brothers and the Franciscan sisters got together and said, hey, let's, uh, you know, let's, let's staff this hospital and uh, run it in a way that we get you know, fantastic results. And through some relatively um, modest uh, adoption of aseptic surgical techniques, like washing their hands between cases, uh, which was something that was being taught in medical schools, but not very well practiced, you know, by consistently practicing that, they got a lot more people surviving and, and doing well and, and going home and talking about it. So what we see is Facebook, um, for instance, is the back fence of the 21st century. You know, it's where people used to just go home and tell their family and friends um, in person. You know, now there's an opportunity for people who've had an experience to um, write on our Mayo Clinic wall. And if they do, then their friends see that, which, mm -hmm. you know, accelerates the word of mouth. Um, our blogs, you know, are, well, okay, I guess we, Twitter would be, um, a great way, a great thing that we use for, you know, short updates, which is all you can do with 140 characters, but alerting people about um, topics that are being discussed on our weekend radio program or, um, you know, news stories. Today, we had a story that was in the Wall Street Journal and, you know, so being able to tweet out that link to um, people who are interested so that they could read it or maybe retweet, pass it along. Um, YouTube is is our all-purpose video uh, serving engine, that, and the really cool thing is that you don't pay anything for it, that you can take the video from your YouTube channel, embed it in your blog, and so then you don't have the storage and bandwidth costs for, for that. But beyond that, you know, YouTube is the world's second most popular search engine. It's uh, a place where people go looking for things. And uh, if you want your video to be seen, that's one really important place to be. Yeah, and you're actually embedding those in your Facebook posts, too, because I know I've watched a yep. few of them. Yeah. Yep, we're doing some of that, too. Yeah. Well, what's the, uh, you know, a question that always gets asked, you know, and of skeptical people, well, wait a minute, you know, and I, I want to ask you about your department and how big it is, but first off, you know, a big question is, okay, well, wait a minute, what's the return on investment? So that, you know, the financial people go, well, wait a minute, this, this must all cost a lot of money, and what's it really doing for us? And tell us about how you've looked at that at Mayo. Sure. Well, I mean, I think um, a real key has been for us to start by doing things as inexpensively as we can. I mentioned earlier that we did podcasts out of our existing broadcast um, files so that we 
we weren't putting a lot of extra money into it. And so then the way I like to position this is say, you know, as I approaches zero, ROI approaches infinity. Um, if you keep the costs really, really low, then it doesn't take a lot of, um, of uh, response, a lot of return uh, to make it a very positive, um, you know, outcome. So we, you know, we, the next step that we had taken with that in our podcast was to take the audio track from the 20 minute interviews that we were doing with physicians for our TV segments. And, you know, where eight seconds maybe of the, of the doctor's soundbite was actually making it on the air on TV. Well, taking what was actually being wasted, which was the, the rest of that interview mm -hmm. um, and making it available to, to patients. So then, you know, when it really comes down to it, you know, when a, when a blog costs less than $100 a year, when a, a flip or other consumer grade uh, video camera costs maybe $200 or less, uh, when YouTube's free, when Twitter's free, um, Facebook's free, you're noting a pattern, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you know, as, you, as you keep the costs low, um, then it really doesn't take um, a lot more in the way of um, new appointments or new patients to, you know, greatly um, exceed the the revenues uh, needed to pay for those for those costs. Um, so it really comes down to that, you know, when you can pay for things out of the anecdotes, you know, when you have uh, one video where a physician sent me a, a note saying I've had at least 15 out-of-state consults from this one video, that pretty much pays for the whole program. Yeah, right. You know, and then, you know, when you have uh, 500 more videos besides that, and where you know, obviously, the you know, the return on any one of the videos is going to be um, different and it, you know, kind of depends on the topic. But when the, you know, anecdotes are significant enough and when you've worked to keep the costs low, then um, it's given us an opportunity to sort of get our feet underneath ourselves and and uh, have something to build upon. Um, so it's it doesn't stay zero forever, but if you keep it zero as long as you can, then uh, you're under less pressure to um, you know immediately demonstrate that uh, big return. Right. Do you, do you actually keep stats on you know number of downloads uh, and and then? I guess more importantly, you know, the referrals you talked about. Sure. You know. Well, I mean, we do look at, at overall things like, you know, traffic to our YouTube channel. We just crossed the 1.3 million views mark uh, on YouTube. Um, we we you know, look at traffic to our blogs. Um, you know, for, as far as the sort of bottom line, you know, patients coming here thing, um, we don't track that systematically, partly because, you know, that would take us, that would require us to ask every patient coming in, why did you, you know, what was your most important factor in coming to Mayo Clinic? Mm -hmm. And with, you know, 600,000 unique patients a year and something like 1.4 million, you know, patient visits, um, that's just adding overhead to that process that, I mean, we're really all about treating the patients and not um, not not doing marketing research with them. So from our, uh, you know, but the point is when we get uh, feedback from specific physicians that are that are giving us, uh, you know, the anecdotes that, uh, that really tell the story, um, then that uh, has given us um, confidence to, you know, push forward with more. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I found that I'm, I'm not surprised that you have 11,000 fans um, on your Facebook page because I've told people, especially in the air medical and critical care transport world, that if you want to see a good site that's really integrating well, um, you've got to look at, at Mayo. So hopefully well, some of those... You're probably worth a few hundred of them. Anyway. Yeah, so, yeah, I was going to say, hopefully <laughs> some of those are referrals. But, yeah. um, but there had to have been some skepticism within Mayo of, of where you were going with this. Um, and was there, and was there kind of an aha moment that um, uh, people felt like, wow, this is really a good thing? Well, I think there um, have been a couple of, of big ones that you might point to. Um, the first was when we did our first podcast and um, listed it in iTunes and saw the downloads of our MP3 files go from 900 a month to 74,000 a month in one month, that that um, helped uh, helped us make the case internally that... Um, it's worth more than nothing. That's <laughs> yeah. worth inv investigating further that we really ought to look into this. Um, you know, it took a little soaking time. It took a, a, a little bit. We probably spent a year and a half after that, you know, taking a step back and figuring out, so what would be the best way to do this? And, and so we settled on the strategy of looking at what we were already producing in terms of the, the TV segments and, you know, how can we use uh, assets that are that we already have on hand and, and not let them go to waste. So that got us, um, you know, that, that helped us uh, a bunch with it. I think uh, um, another one was, you know, when we did our Facebook fan page and went about a year with no major um, problems, um, no significant really negative comments, um, and just that it was a, a positive thing that helped us keep it moving along. You know, and then our um, now famous octogenarian idols, the piano yeah. playing duo from uh, Ankeny, Iowa. Um, he was 89, she was 82. And, and the, the fact that actually one of our patients had taken video of them and had uploaded it to YouTube and when we embedded it in our blog, um, it just went crazy. And it's now up to something like 5.7 million views of that one. Um, uh, actually, tell us, the listeners, about that little background and... Well, piano. sure. Yeah, there's uh, there's a piano in our uh, Gonda building uh, atrium that has a little sign on it that says, um, if you'd like to play this piano and if you think others would enjoy hearing you, you know, please feel free to play. Well, there's uh, this uh, couple from Ankeny, Iowa, you know, in their in their 80s were here for uh, some appointments and in between their their appointments they were going down and playing in the on the piano and they they were entertainers just natural entertainers but you know vaudeville almost um and they um you know one of one of our other patients you know saw them playing asked if it'd be okay to to record it and they said that'd be fine so they shot it and it's about a minute and 15 clip where they're standing at the piano and playing this really, you know, rousing song, and it's pretty funny. There, are, there are pretty some cute elements related to that. And at any rate, someone sent me that by email, sent me the the link to it, and I said, "Wow, this is cool. This really fits with sharing Mayo Clinic. I mean, it's kind of a taste of what it's like here." And so we did it embedded in the blog and tweeted it and posted that link to Facebook. So that's an example of how these things work together. And it ended up that they were 
eventually, you know, featured in the front page of the Des Moines Register, which is their hometown, you know, metro paper. And they got live, uh, you know, they were flown out to New York to be on Good Morning America, and they played live in the studio. Um, so it was a really neat project that came out of, you know, and actually that was zero expense because yeah. we didn't shoot the video. Uh, it was a matter of uh, just having a place where it would fit and being able to tell the story there. And that's, that absolutely, I mean, that's really describes going viral. I mean, that's... Uh, that, that is, uh, you know, our, many of our, you know, medically oriented videos, there's no way they're going to go viral. I mean, they're just, they're aimed at a specific audience, a specific mm -hmm. patient population. This is one of those things that was just fun, you know, minute 15, really easy to share, and uh, an awful lot of people did. Yeah. And, you know, so when people are looking at a, you know, the, the heading on the video is Mayo Clinic Atrium, you know, piano, charming older couple. You know, when you have people looking at that video, you know, over five million times and smiling, that's a good thing. Yeah, good thing for the organization. Hmm. Well, well, tell us about uh, your department, the syndication and social media um, how big is that? How many positions? And has that yeah. grown throughout the years since you've been there? Yeah, well, that's a really, uh, that is an interesting uh, thing because um, we have a, a syndication and social media team and it's kind of divided into two parts and I'm kind of at the hub between those. Our, our syndication team is the one that produces the TV and radio segments. Mm -hmm. And that's... Um, you know, about uh, four of us plus uh, some freelancers that, uh, you know, help out with that. Um, on the other hand, the social media team is actually kind of carved out of that too, or at least the the implementation part of it. Um, one of our people who, uh, my colleague Joel, who does our um, radio segments, our daily radio segments, also does the video editing for most of our YouTube videos. And so it's really, when it comes down to it, it's about one and a half FTEs on the, that are dedicated to the social media side. But when you, um, but the way we've done it is not by saying we want to set up a social media department. We um, are training our staff within public affairs so that everybody who's got you know, communication responsibility is taking social media into account. So it's not, um, okay, let's do this and then send it over to the social media team. It's, okay, I'm communicating about this program. Um, how can I incorporate social media into it? Mm -hmm. So it's, so in that sense, we've got, you know, 20, 25 people working on it. <laughs> and in the other sense, we have one and a half. So it's kind of, uh, take your pick. Let's see. Well, looking at, um, other, I, I know you've worked and uh, uh, spoken, you know, at different uh, organizations. What are some of the barriers uh, that are keeping organizations from adopting social communication tools? Sure. Well, I think, um, you know, there's this saying from the computer world of FUD, you know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And I think you see um, mainly, you know, lack of understanding about a, the prevalence and the growth of these tools, and so uh, organizations might not think they're um, they're really all that worthwhile. Uh, that's just from not having uh, had that experience. I mentioned a little bit earlier that um, you know the legal department and IT uh, can often be barriers where it's just easier to say no. Um, I think also. Um, sometimes the public relations function can be one of those barriers because 
people who are used to being the only spokespeople for the organization, the official channel of communications, um, tend to be suspicious that, you know, somebody in the rank and file is going to be able to, you know, communicate out with the world. And so they're concerned about that. So um, I sort of view those as the three major groups that sometimes um, can stand in the way. I see. Well, let's go into and, and talk about emergency uh, medical services and specifically air medical and critical care transport because uh, Mayo One such a big part of Mayo. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you seen social media tools used by these organizations, and are, is there things that are unique to them? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the main thing is to, you know, to understand what the tools can do, and then you are able to look as someone who really knows uh, the industry, how that can be applied. Um, so, for instance, um, we've, we've done some video stories with uh, Mail One, you know, like our night vision goggles and, and mm-hmm. some things like that, where we've been able to illustrate, you know, some of that uh, functionality. We also used it in the case of some um, serious accidents where we needed to provide um, briefings to the media. And But if you're providing to the media, if you can provide it to the general public directly as well, that's great. So we've used our news blog for that. Uh, when we had a, a rollover bus accident um, and a school bus accident the same night and there were multiple fatalities and lots of injuries, you know, we're able to you know, use our blog as a way to communicate not only to um, media, but also to the community. And, um, you know, I definitely for increasing understanding of what organizations do. Um, and I think in the, the air medical transport uh, world, uh, having people understand, you know, what you're all about and you know, what's, what it's like in your field and the challenges that you face, um, definitely have an opportunity to uh, communicate with your key stakeholders. Yeah. And I've been on Air Medical today. Um, I've actually been keeping track uh, as more and more programs come up on Facebook and it is growing rapidly. Mm -hmm. And the good thing about uh, Air Medical and Critical Care Transport is there are so many people that want to connect such as EMS and you know referring hospitals um, so it's it it is a natural but, right. but what what advice would you give um, you know male one's lucky I mean they've got you and they've got a department that really understands that what about it at a hospital that's kind of not um, uh, you know open to to new media and you know you're a hospital-based program yeah well I mean I think um, you know, we mentioned some of the barriers that can come up, and part of it is you just need to, I mean, kind of working with those groups that can be the barriers um, to get uh, one or more of them on your side uh, to help them to, you know, understand, you know, how the tools can be used and, and what you see as practical benefits. Um, if, it, if it's just kind of, oh, that's cool, but you can't see what good it could do, then that's, you know, I, you know, what practical benefit can have to the organization, then that's going to be a harder sell. Um, I mean, I just, sometimes I like to try to reduce things to as ridiculous um, and extreme as I can by saying, you know, people are paying um, really good money for Yellow Pages ads. Uh, 
you know, yeah. they, they buy an ad in the yellow pages. Why would you not take advantage of the free Facebook <laughs> page, right. you know, which lets you not only have your phone number and listing and all that, but um, video and photos and, you know, much more in-depth information. And if you're, if you have advertising that you're paying for, uh, that actually is, I think, my thesis number 28 of my 35 theses is okay. it's not particularly astute. You know, you talk about being a good business person uh, to you know, pay for advertising and then not take advantage of the free stuff. Right. And I, I think it's easier for those air medical or critical care transport programs that are independent. But I think even there, there's barriers. And I've actually spoken with a number of them and actually referred them to your site. I said, you need to go through and look at the power of that. Um, so. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, you have a wonderful site uh, that I just referred to called Social, Social Media University Global. And I'll have that uh, link in the uh, show notes. Um, tell us how and why you started this. Cause this is on your, your own time. You do that. Yeah. At night. Yeah. Yeah. That's my night job. Um, <laughs> and actually it, it started out of, uh, in 2006, I was uh, given the, you know, more official responsibility that I was going to be, uh, responsible for what we called new media at the time. And so I said, I gotta, I gotta get uh, hands-on experience. I need to know how these tools work so that I actually wanted to make the mistake, make my mistakes on my own time instead of on behalf of Mayo Clinic, and so I um, I started my blog, which at the time was called Lines from Lee. Um, yeah. I was just kind of big on alliteration, and, and I actually didn't even know what I wanted to write about, uh, but I just knew I needed to get the experience. And over time, as I moved more from traditional media into social media kind of applications. I got asked to do some uh, presentations, and one that I did was a Facebook 101 course for an organization in Chicago. And um, there were some really good questions that were asked, and you know, more in depth than than I was able to go into in the limited time that we had. And I kind of joked with them. I said, "Well, you know, that's in the 201 course," and that just got me to thinking. You know, what would what would be really neat is if you could set up something that had a sequential learning process for people who just wanted to get familiar with these tools, you know, kind of in the 101, 102, 103, you know, spectrum. And so I did it with Facebook, I did it with podcasting, I did it with Twitter, with blogging. I've got some general education requirements uh, in there. And I just decided to have some fun with it. Um, you know, it's a tongue-in-cheek university. It's not accredited, but then again, <laughs> there's there's no tuition. Um, and the whole idea behind it is to let people get the same kind of experience that I got, um, hands-on experience, uh, and kind of guiding them through that so that they, uh, to hopefully take care of the fear part of the, <laughs> of the FUD, of the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, to help people to see that, you know, th this isn't that hard. It couldn't be that hard. If it was that hard, you wouldn't have 350 million people in Facebook. Um, so if, if kids can do it, um, it isn't that they're smarter. It's just that they're willing to try things. And so I'm really trying to encourage um, people of our relative vintage uh, to go in and get the hands-on experience so that they can then, once they've done it personally, they can go back to their organizations and, and with confidence say, you know, we can do this here. 
Well, I, I absolutely love the courses that you offer, and I, I know they're some of them tongue in cheek, but there's just some great information. I, I guess my only disappointment is that, geez, I thought I was working for a degree here. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that comes late. You know, University of Phoenix has the big uh, stadium that they have to fund, and so <laughs> yeah. maybe at some point uh, we'll have to see about that. But I, I'm just, uh, you know, my family, you know, background. Um, my dad was an elementary principal, but we've also um, I mean, we've homeschooled our kids mostly. Uh, so we, you know, we really believe that learning within a structured environment is great, but if you can do it, um, more informally and just get the knowledge that you need, you know, that's a, that's a great thing too. So I really, you know, I really do like to, to teach and, and help and provide the resources. And I, that's part of the beauty of this stuff is that, um, once I've, you know, if I've done a post, I've done a course, um, it, it doesn't cost me anything more for more people to, to go through it. In fact, it makes it better because you get more comments and you get more discussion and, uh, we learn from each other. So it's, uh, I appreciate your, your, uh, mentioning of it. And, and if we get more smuggles out of the deal, that'd be great. <laughs> well, I know you're, um, going off to a, uh, sporting event, but, uh, I had a couple more questions and they related to, uh, the smug blog. Mm -hmm. One was, uh, I believe it was yesterday, that was absolutely hilarious. It was called uh, If Air Travel Worked Like Healthcare. And I, I will have a link to this. And I've already passed this on to a number of people. And I think I tweeted it out on Air Medical today. Um, but it's just a, uh, a really good video on uh, how complicated our healthcare system is. And mm -hmm. I don't want to go into healthcare reform. And, you know, there's been ups and downs with that, you know, depending on, you know, what side of the political fence you are with it. But what do you think is the current impact and promise for new media on a consumer's experiences and their expectations from healthcare institutions? Well, yeah, I, I appreciate it. I think that was, I thought that was a really good video. And, and it does illustrate just sort of the, the power of, um, the tools is that, uh, you know, somebody could just get an idea, wow, you know, there's a neat analogy here between air travel and healthcare, and let's let's do a skit. And it didn't require a ton of fancy equipment and, you know, over-the-top production. It, they could just do it. And they didn't have to get um, the local television station to say, you know, that's worth spending seven minutes of our precious airtime, you know, to, to put over the air. Um, I, I, as I think as I had last seen, or when I did the blog post, this had been seen around 40,000 times. Oh um, and not just within a, yeah, not just within a geograph. And that was in two weeks. So it's, um, it really does provide an outlet for people with some uh, creative ideas to, uh, help spread them. But I think, you know, that just, can sort of cascade through the system and uh, whether it's, you know, innovative ways of providing uh, support for patients with diabetes or um, just any, any number of applications. The point is learn what the tools are, learn what they do and their strengths, and then figure out how you can combine them in a way that uh, meets what your objectives are. Yeah. Well, it was just, it hit such a good nerve because, uh, you know, the, 
how complicated our system is and you have yeah. to keep giving the same information over and over and over again. Of course, right. I, of course, I, I don't know, air travel has gotten more complicated too. So someone will have to do a video on that. Yeah. Well, uh, there's the United Breaks Guitars video. They don't have it all you know, yeah. completely down either. So yeah. you uh, actually this morning I uh, saw from your blog, uh, delivered a video conference uh, to a gathering in Zurich, Switzerland, uh, which was entitled, why social media is essential to the future of healthcare. Why do you think it is essential? Well, I mean, it really is um, kind of a back to the future, uh, back to the future part three kind of thing, I guess. Mm. It's uh, um, if you, when, uh, when Doc and Marty went back to the Old West, um, it really provides the opportunity to make healthcare a lot more personal, um, to give people the um, Access, you know, in our case, from the way the way I'm seeing it, um, if you can hear a world famous Mayo Clinic expert uh, talk about the disease or condition that you have, um, that's crucial, <laughs> you know. And for them to be able then to for that to inform a discussion that a patient might have with their local provider, you know, to really get the best, you know, state of the art kind of care, I think that's that's huge. Um, the other part is that as you see uh, patient support groups and people with chronic conditions and how that um, how chronic conditions, you know, consume an awful lot of the the spending that we're doing on healthcare. If you're able to um, use some of these tools to provide that mutual support and guidance, that will uh, help people with chronic conditions manage them better mm. and you know stay healthier. I think that's uh, huge. But the other part is that. Um, it almost can't help being essential to the future of healthcare because it is such a huge communications trend that it's like, um, you know, one day you won't be able to imagine uh, that a that a healthcare provider wouldn't have a Facebook page or that you know or that they wouldn't have um, a YouTube channel or that they wouldn't have interactivity you know built into their to their systems. Um, just like you can't imagine. You know, not having a telephone. Now you can't imagine not having a landline. I don't have one <laughs> at at home, but you know that's how the technology has progressed. But um, it there are there are things that um, a generation ago were not even considered possible. That you know even today. Um, are no longer even they're they're considered old. I'm thinking the fax machine. Yes, <laughs> you know, right. a generation ago, it was amazing to be able to send you know paper documents over the telephone lines, and now you know an awful lot of people just don't even really use faxes. So it's uh, you know these are uh, these are really at their core. They're powerful communications tools, and uh, communication is huge in healthcare. Um, it's really what it's all about. I mean, there's definitely science is is important, but it's also about uh, conversations with patients and understanding what their you know complaints and um, and symptoms are all about, and 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 working together with them to find the best way to to solve it. Yeah. Well, I uh, I could talk for hours with you, Lee. It's a, it's fascinating uh, the information, and you know I'm obviously sold with uh, the type of work that. That I'm doing, and you know, I wanted to thank you again. We had arranged, and I'll I'll put this in the show notes. Uh, Lee had done a webinar uh, for a number of folks within the uh, Association of Air Medical Services, and how to how to do that, and that was uh, 
a PowerPoint, and we'll put the, the link up to that because um, uh, that was some very helpful information. Okay. Is, th- is there anything else that uh, you'd like to tell our listeners about new media? Yeah, I guess um, maybe maybe it's reiterating a little bit, but I guess the, the main point that I would make is um, this is, as I see it, the defining um, communication trend of the third millennium of the 21st century, at least the part of the third millennium that I will be around for. <laughs> and, um, you know, to not understand how these tools work will put you at a significant disadvantage, uh, whether it's competitively or just, you know, being able to provide good service to your um, patients, to your customers. And so I would, um, you know, just really encourage people to get the hands-on experience to um so that they really, in a deep way, um, get or understand uh, what the capabilities are. And then you'll be able to apply uh, what you've learned in your own environment to see, wow, that's a need that this could meet, you know, and and particularly very likely that you're going to be able to do it uh, at lower cost than what you're currently using. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. And, I, and I'd like to complete that by you know, I, as I, I refer people to your smug site, and I think that's really one of the best places to start if you're kind of scratching your head on how to start. Just take the courses and go through in sequence, and you'll you'll get up to speed. So, well, thanks. I appreciate that, and yeah. I appreciate the opportunity to to talk with you today. This has been fun. It's uh, been great for for me too, and and thank you so much for being on the podcast, Lee. Take care and best of luck with uh, your continued work with uh, Mayo Clinic and then also on your social media site. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com and also on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the site. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song of the podcast. Stan's work can be found at RoomTuneEnterprise.com. Please continue to keep the citizens of Haiti, the victims of the earthquake, and all the volunteers in your thoughts and prayers. Until the next episode, take care and fly safe. (music) 